Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg and this is a weekly conversation with someone that I find truly inspiring that will hopefully leave you truly inspired as well. My goal in this show is to talk with guests that have a great story to tell or guests who have achieved something remarkable in their lives and through their story, hopefully get inspired myself and perhaps inspire you too. Thank you very much to everybody that tweeted through the week about the show. Thank you so, so much. There's a brand new home for the show. It's at osherginsberg.com, O-S-H-E-R-G-U-N-S-B-E-R-G.com. If it's for you, if you'd like to, if you feel you're comfortable with it, if you could tweet out a link or put on your Facebook wall a link to the show or whichever particular episode you've been enjoying, that would be the greatest thing you could do for me. This show's free. It will always be free. Uh, I, I do it because you listen. So many people of you listen. I keep doing it and I love to do it. It's one of the greatest things I've done in my career. And if you feel like... Um, pushing some energy back my way, that's how you do it. Thank you so, so much. You could also do me a kindness, go into um, the uh, iTunes app on your phone or on your laptop or whatever and uh, rate the show and comment on the show. That uh, means a lot. While you're on the new website, it's a very fancy new website. I'm real stoked about it. It took a little while to develop, but uh, still own a few bugs out. But man, I really dig it. I love it because all the, uh, all the portraits that I shoot uh, are up there on display, and look, I'm really stoked about it. Every time I, sh- I interview a guest, I, uh, I shoot their portrait on a vintage Polaroid 110A that I, I trek with me wherever I go around the world, and um, uh, it, it's great. So I've got all these um, these fabulous portraits of these people, and um, they're up on the website right now. There's a mailing list now. Yeah, the guy that built my website is this snazzy internet marketing guy. Brad's his name. He's like, dude, you need a mailing list. So I've got a mailing list. So pop on there. I'm... I'm uh, I'll let you know when the shows are coming out every week and a few other things that I've, I won't put anywhere else. So I'll give you some, some inside on, uh, on what's happening um, more than what I talk about here. I am in Amsterdam at the moment and I'm absolutely just loving it. I know a lot of you have already been here. I, I'm a little late to the party. I know. I know many of you have traveled around the world many times and you're like, Amsterdam, boo, I was there ages ago. But yeah, it's my first time here and it's incredible. I'm really really blown away by the society here um, that completely fine how completely fine everyone is is being on bicycles not just you know students and 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 greenies but it's like you know middle class upper middle class upper class people on bikes just riding around getting around getting their groceries getting their day-to-day errands done on bicycles 
old men, young men, old women, young women, grandmas. And I also really dig that no one really, they don't like do a massive weekly shop here. They just kind of go out and get stuff for dinner tonight, lunch tomorrow, maybe a bit of breakfast. And that's it. They, you know, visit the grocery store like every two days. And they just take stuff home. And then they, they don't really like fill the deep freeze with half a carcass of beef. You know, they just, just kind of do their thing. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I'm, I'm liking that it's a, a compact and, 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 and I'm not going to say small city, but it's a, it's a compact community. 700,000 people, a little smaller than Adelaide. And I really get the feeling bicycling around here and seeing, you know, talking to people who live here that the city really seems like it's, 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 it's a help rather than a hindrance in, in life here. Like it's, it's, it's easy to get around and everything seems to be fairly organized in, in where you're expected to be. And the train goes to the airport and right there and everything's quite organized and, and, and together. Whereas uh, in Los Angeles where I live that, it, it seems like the city is, is almost a nemesis and it's, it's very difficult. You've got to fight against it every day and there's 18 million people and it's 100 miles from the beach to the outer suburbs. Like 160K, you can keep driving and there's still bloody suburbs. It's like, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's full on, you know. It's only when you leave somewhere that you get a good perspective on, on what you're at and, and you come here and you see this kind of society and, you know, I know many of you have been here and, and you've lived all over Europe, obviously. I haven't. I never lived in Europe except when I was a kid because I was born here. But then uh, it's just really wonderful to see that, oh, it can be done. It can be done. And it's nice. I really like it. Uh, I, could, I could quite easily live without a car and live on bicycles here. It'd be pretty fun. I'd dig it. I was in London, which was rad. There was a fun bicycling moment in London where I picked up one of those tourist bikes. Like for two pounds, you can get a, a Barclays bike. You just unlock it from the docking station for two pounds. As long as it's under half an hour, you can ride it anywhere for 24 hours. Just park it somewhere else. And um, I kind of went all Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Premium Rush, and I was like fanging this Barclays bike through four lanes of double-decker buses around Piccadilly Circus in this massive roundabout. It was, it was really fun, jumping over curbs and stuff on this thing. It was rad. Uh, also got some really great runs in. Thanks for everybody that asked about what's going on. I'm I'm feeling a little better because um, I'm I'm just working super hard. I'm trying to get that discipline right back in there. I'm trying to get to sleep on time, wake up on time, eat right, try and run or ride every single day. Um, you'd be surprised how good 10k makes you feel every day. That's been working. But uh, you know, doing this kind of thing really makes me feel a lot better too. Ha, Charlie Pickering's my guest today. He's amazing. And uh, obviously, I wanted to get this interview out before he announced that he's going to leave the project. But he's going to leave the project. Uh, for folks listening in America, Charlie Pickering is essentially the John Stewart of Australia. He does a daily show. It's a news show. It's in the evenings. It's uh, very highly regarded, very highly rated. Uh, and it's news, it's current affairs, it's discussion. And he's very, very smart, very, very funny. And I have a massive career crush on him because he's, you know, it's a dream job, man. I, I've sat in that chair. I've done that show. It's come on. It's the greatest job ever. And he does it better than anyone. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see how they replace him because he's just so good at it. And even though I'm quite sad that he's leaving, I'm also, because I feel he's a very important voice in Australia. I really, really do, particularly the way he talks about racism and the way he talks about women, I find is very, very important uh, in modern Australia. Um, I'm also really excited that he's leaving because over the course of this conversation, which I'm, glad, I'm grateful doesn't date as much as I thought it does. It does a bit, but not too much because we recorded it back in the summer um, in December, I think, or November when I was there. Uh, 
he, you, you can, if you've ever done like kind of basic high school maths or, or failed like I did, you can kind of put points on a graph and then plot a line between those points and then predict where the next thing is if, if the trend continues. You follow the trend of what Charlie describes in this interview and you can see where he's going to go and that he's going to be just fine. He's going to make some amazing stuff and I'm real excited, real excited for him, super excited for him, in fact. So enjoy this. You're going to come and sit in Charlie Pickering's house. You're going to sit at his, at his dinner table. Um, where he and his his, his wife and uh, they they eat and they discuss their day, surrounded by his incredible photographs, which we describe. And um, the sun was streaming in through the window, and his, his terriers were under the table, licking my feet, licking my feet, which was pretty wild. He's um, a lovely man, and I'm really thrilled that you can enjoy this. So um, this is Charlie Pickering. If you like him. Tweet him. Let him know you heard him here. He's at Charlie Pick, P-I-C-K, at Charlie Pick. He's on Twitter. Let him know you heard him on the show. All right, enjoy this. It's Charlie Pickering. I am very happy to be here, Charlie Pickering. Oh, welcome. Welcome to my home. Your home's incredible. It See, made me pine. No, the, you, you, the thing is, you say that the moment you say, "Oh, your home's incredible," people are imagining like something that Vinny would have in Entourage. It's not like this is. It's a little cottage. Like it's just a nice little weatherboard house with a white picket fence. It's kind of everything I like. But, but it's, just the things that I'm surrounded by: the shepherd fairy on the wall, the photo of Fidel uh, of of Che lighting Castro's cigar. Um, it's amazing to be surrounded by the things that make you you, man. It's beautiful. There's um, we'll we'll probably get to them, but there's just some menus from um, my two favourite restaurants. They're both in the states. They're both run by the same guy, but French Laundry and Per Se, and they're like, I don't know, that those meals were memories, sort of thing. So we kept them. Men- men- I love it. Frame, yeah, yeah. Um, look, I'm I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you can do this because you are you are a very important person to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I do not agree with that, but um, but that's lovely of you to say so. But you are. You offer an alternative to the... How the school bus is going to kill your children <laughs> next on ACA. Yeah. You offer the alternative to the fear-based current affairs shows. And it's refreshing to... Oh, that's right. The sky isn't actually falling. And we actually can ask intelligent questions and leave space for answers that may not concur with what our thinking is and then go okay obviously much more to talk about we'll come back later yeah and 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 we attempt that under massive as you know because you've come and played with us and you've you've sat in my chair and, and covered for me and you do it under the most enormous time pressure with with this inability to really you know you can't spend an hour talking about things that probably deserve an hour but i, I if you look at the history of television someone figured out Probably in the 70s. I, I think it really started to happen in the 70s that fear was a very powerful motivator. That, and, and that was during the Cold War. So you could do stuff like what would happen in the event of a nuclear war and you would just get scientists on to say if nuclear war happened, England would be destroyed in an hour and half of the American population would die. And, and, and it turned out the more you talked about that, the more people watched it because they were just scared and they it triggers survival things in your brain you think oh, i need to know all of this stuff if i'm going to be okay but it's gotten so ludicrous now that 
It doesn't matter if some guy was a dodgy fridge repairman. It just doesn't matter. That's between the guy whose fridge it was and the repairman. Like, I have things in my life that don't go perfectly. I don't think I deserve a national TV audience to sort them out for me. And I also think it's not helpful to anyone to make them scared of things they don't need to be scared of. What I think is great, and and I think we benefit from this, is we're also entering the age of big data. So a lot of the wild accusations and things that pushed fear points and triggers within people, we've now got enough information and and enough computing power to process that information to go, well, actually, that's not accurate. You know, what, what we do know is that some, there's been a decline of something like 70 or 80% in kids riding their bikes or walking to school since you and I were kids. Uh, that's coincided with a massive leap in obesity in children, and there's no coincidence there. Uh, but the rate of attacks on children hasn't gone up. Children are just as safe as they ever were walking to school or riding a bike to school. In fact, threats to your children come from within the home by an overwhelming percentage. Within the family, within the community, yeah. We now have all of the data that says that. So what we actually have to start doing, we've got a responsibility to say, do you know what? You, you've actually got to weigh up some statistics now. Rather than just going, oh, that makes me feel scared, weigh up some data and make some informed decisions. It's the hardest thing in the world to start trying to, I don't know, start trying to perpetuate informed decision-making rather than gut. It's a very difficult thing, you know, and we try to do that. We, we do try to do that. And it's a, it's a great place to stand when, when making a, a television show, and I, I definitely want to talk about that because we, we will get to that. But as I was getting ready for this, and I was, I was looking into you and your background. You were the guy I was afraid of when I was 18 because you were smarter, you were faster, and you were, you were at university and I wasn't. And I'm like, I, was, I would have been too afraid to talk to you when I was, at, when I was 18 because I would, I would have felt completely outgunned. Well, okay, so you were the guy that I was intimidated with when I was 18. You How? were like, you, well... I'm not what I looked like when I was 18. Yeah, no, no, I understand that. Well, well I didn't know you then, but I knew you. I, like, I've known you for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, and you were, you were lovely from day one. I will say that from the first moment when I met you. Maybe that was the fear you're talking about, but you were lovely from day one. Um, but no, I, was, I wasn't as developed as everyone around me. I, I like skipped a grade back at school and I, was, and I was just smaller. I was just smaller and... Skipped a grade ahead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, so and, you graduated and you were a year younger than everybody yeah, else? Yeah, I, I, I had just turned 17... I just turned 17 when I finished school and was at, I was at uni, I was 17. So I didn't, fake ID was a necessity yeah. for a social life. And, you know, so a lot of the things that came along for most people then and, and about growing up and moving on, I had to wait a bit for. But I was also smaller than everyone. I went through puberty later than everyone in my class and we'll talk about that. That was enough. Like that was difficult enough in itself. You can't control biology, but... Well, okay, let's, let's talk about that. Okay, it, cool. In the... In the the great Gladwell book, Outliers, he argues a very strong case for keeping your kids back and letting them start later so they're bigger and older than everybody else because the kids who are bigger get more opportunities in school. And he goes through this whole diagram of all the NHL players who are, you know, they're all born within three months of the school year's intake because yeah. they're, the, they're the largest ones in the class. And, and if you've ever, I remember when I first got around my first bunch of Ivy League people, I'm like, you're all six foot five and devastatingly good looking. Yeah. Because they were the tallest, best looking ones. And 
being the other guy in the class must have been really hard. Yeah. Not saying that you weren't great and handsome. <laughs> but, no, but I was, I, was a, I was small. And so I evolved, for a bunch of reasons, I evolved a sense of humour. That's a survival mechanism. And, and that, it was also an edge. Like if I was quicker at making a joke than everyone around me, that maybe gave me a chance to own a bit of territory. You know, like there, there was a little bit of territory there. Like I could, although it got me into as much trouble as it solved. But I, look, I don't, I don't know if it's, it depends what you're trying to achieve as far as starting your kids early and skipping grades. And I know my parents agonised over it. Like, you know, like it was really difficult. But, but it came from a place that I was misbehaving a lot at school and I was, um, okay, that's my dog jumping up there. Oh, that's dogs, that's Kennedy, dogs are always Kennedy welcome. the Scottish Terrier jumping up there. Um, uh, I misbehaved. Like I had a detention in grade four, which had never happened in my school before, but it was, I was bored out of my mind. Like I was just bored. And I also knew, well, I'm bored, so I'm just going to crack jokes. I'm just going to start little shows in the corner of the classroom because that's what's important to me. And that is not fair on everyone else in the class, as my teachers <laughs> rightly when you're acknowledge. Nine, when you're eight, it doesn't... You don't have a concept of that. No. Like, you don't. But it's... Um, and it's only now, that's probably the first time I've ever realised that was the problem with being the class clown is everyone deserves an education, you know. So you, you, it's maybe not the best idea to get in everyone's way. But there was a necessity there. There was a behavioural necessity to, that needed to be solved. And eventually it was solved, I think, more by changing schools than, than by skipping a grade because I skipped a grade. So you went from four to six? Went from four to six. Wow. And I was just as bored played up just as much and was in trouble just as much. And if anything, by quirk of fate, I had a teacher who I related to less than my grade four teacher and we were at war. Yeah, like we were, we were at war for that whole year and she did things that I thought were appalling, like terrible things to do to students and, and, and I got angry about that. So I started making lots of jokes at her expense because I didn't like the way she treated the weakest in the class. Like, and, and so there was a real... Like, and uh, that's just me with some weird sense of taking that responsibility on myself to stick up for people or whatever it is, which was hard enough when I was the smallest, youngest guy in the class. When you're a kid, all you've got is your words. Yeah, that's right. And you realize around that age, you realize, oh, my words can hurt an adult. I'm physically incapable of hurting this person or controlling. This person can put me in a car and drive me somewhere. This person can tell me to go to this place or just keep me back after school or whatever. But I can say something and I can watch their face change. Yeah. Even when you're 10 or 11. Um, and it takes a fair amount of, I guess, mindfulness to decide to use that for good and not evil oh, or, no, or decide not like... to be, use, make, make that a tool or, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky. But it was, um, in the end, it was changing school to a, I went from a co-ed school to an all-boys school, a, a, a not strict environment to a strict environment. And it turned out the structure of that strict environment suited me. Um, but it suited me at that time when I needed to be focused on, on learning and studying. And did you find yourself? Oh, um, were you challenged at all by the schoolwork? Moving like completely. Oddly, oddly enough, it, it felt like I was more challenged by it, and I think it was because it was a more academic school. Like right. a, the, there was a, there was a sense that there was stuff to learn, and you had to learn it. And 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 it's weird. I went to this school that had all of these forms of assessment set up that today would surprise people or scare people or would go, oh, that's over-testing. Or whatever. For example, at our school, at the end of every term, so four terms a year, at the end of every term, 
they would release rankings of all the students in the year. You would know where you were. You literally had your ranking every term. Wow. The top five in each year level, their names were printed in a newsletter that would come out on Friday and would go home to parents. So it really, it's elitist. And there was a sense that these are the good, these are the kids doing great. Everyone look up to those kids. But you know what? I love a school that says, we're not just going to congratulate the ones that are really good at football. We're going to congratulate the ones that did really well mm. academically. I liked that. That mm. always made sense to me. I, I admit how that is harmful to people who um, don't respond well to that sort of competition and, and to those that, for whatever reason, studying doesn't come as easy to them. But for me, I started at this school and I always thought I was pretty smart. I was always kind of the smartest in the class, but, you know, or it felt that way. You know, one of the people that did really well and never really had to break a sweat getting across things. And then I started a new school. I came in 41 and I was like, and it was 41 out of 110. And I'm like, nah. I'm, and I'm a competitive person. And, and it was just, there was something in that moment that went, all right, now I got to grow up and start doing, and start actually doing the work. Right. You know, I don't think I ever really got good at doing the work until my last year of school where I was obsessed with study and had goals and really set out. It was, and, and I'm kind of a deadline guy. When crunch time comes, that's when I'm just at my best. When, when something has to be delivered under pressure, that's... But that's everyone. You, you do it the night before. Yeah. When the pressure's on, you stay up and you I was the guy. I, everything was really easy for me. Everything was really, really easy, really easy until it was way too late, halfway through grade 11. And I was like, oh, I've got... Oh, the first term of grade 11, I took maths one. I should have taken maths in the beer garden. <laughs> uh, so maths for footballers, whatever you want to call it. Um, I was like, I'm way out of my league. But by then, I had no study skills. I had no ability to, yeah, to no learn. processes to none, apply. Because I'd just always gone... Oh, yeah, I could take a glancing look at it and then pass. But here's the thing. I don't think those skills come naturally to anyone. I think they're skills you have to learn. I think even just running a to-do list properly, properly, I'm still not great at it. Like, you know, but I had this amazing school headmaster who was very flawed, but he, there were great things about him as well. And um, uh, one of the things that he did was after school every day, boys could queue up at his office and go in there, you know, with their, like, student diary, and he would plan their homework for the night with them. Oh. And, and it, was, it was sort of, it, it happened, I think, it, you know, parents or it would, it was kind of a, discussed by parents and it would just happen, but it was like, you know, Charlie should be doing better than he is. Maybe we need to look at the way that he does his homework. You know, the headmaster's available to have a chat to him. Every night I'd be there, like, every day after school and he'd go through, what do you have to do tonight? And he would plan it out. And he'd go, all right, do that and see how you go tomorrow. And magically, I would get it all done. You know, like in a way, like it was always there would be something undone the night before. But how, just having someone there to go, hey, dickhead, this is how, yeah, this yeah, is how right. you plan your night. Um, and so that's great. And, and, you know, to have a school where the headmaster takes the time to do that, that's a, that's a pretty great thing. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a, a great service. Um, and so how early did university come into like, oh, that's where I want to go? I just I don't think there was any doubt of, about it. Like, but I'm I'm fortunate because of, my parents were both pharmacists. They met at pharmacy college um, in the sixties, uh, but they both came from not wealthy backgrounds. They both worked really hard, got scholarships. You know, they they did the hard yards to get there. They were the first in their families to go to university. 
they got professional jobs, which my mum was still pretty remarkable. I mean, late 60s to be a woman with a university degree, with a career not being pushed around by men, that's a pretty tough environment. Um, was that here in Melbourne? Yeah, that was, that was here in Melbourne. And, you know, she worked at a number of pharmacies where the guys were chauvinist pigs and had trouble with the idea of a woman being as qualified as they are. But if quite a few times she would catch – she would like – She'd be the backup when the pharmacist who owned the shop and had been doing it for a long time, she would go, actually, that's not right. You can't have those two medications together. That's bad. And, and there'd be a couple of incidents like that where they'd react badly, but they'd slowly realise that she was really good at her job. Um, so I just grew up with the understanding that the best opportunities were going to come with the most education. And that was just simple and clear to me when I was really young. And, and I, you know... And I still believe most of the problems of the world can be cured if we start with education. Absolutely. And, and it's pretty, it's, it's it's pretty, pretty simple. It's pretty simple stuff. Um, however that education comes, I don't necessarily think everyone needs to go to uni to, to achieve what they want to do. No, but, but, we, but you know, we, even if you want to be a 21-year-old whiz kid in Silicon Valley, you've got to learn to code. Yeah. You've got, you got to learn... There's so much back end that even, you need to know. Even beyond that, like you give me half a day with a homophobic racist and I'll give you a man who goes, oh, actually, no, that's actually not that much of a big deal. Yeah. It really does. There's like a two, there's a half hour conversation. And, and what's, what's amazing, <laughs> you look at, you know, where the places where um, equal marriage has been passed in the States and they do all this poll, polling just before it comes in and then they do this, all, all this polling 12 months after. And what is consistent is just before it comes in, people are about 50-50 on whether they think it's going to be good or destroy the world. And then they poll a year later, and without fail, above 90% of people say it has had absolutely no effect on their life. And then miraculously, there's like 9% of people that say it has made their life better. And that's the gay community (laughs) and people with gay friends who are like, yeah, our laws are applying equally to everyone, turns out it's better. And then there's like 1% of people that are still kind of angry about this thing and you're never going to get through to them. But what's happened there is everyone's been educated. Everyone's just seen how it actually works and gone, do you know what? This is not the big deal it's we all It's getting around that fear that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. It's just, and, and that's all it is. So, well, fear will be, if we're through life and through my career, fear is kind of, fear is the thing I think about the most. Right, and 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 that, and I think that's life, and I think that's um, cre- creativity, and and all of those things. When you give in to fear, you lower your expectations. Yeah, and when you let fear guide what you do too much, what you end up doing is more compromised, and it's less appealing, and it's less satisfying. My meditation teacher tells me that um, uh, when we live in fear, and I used to live in. My entire life was driven by fear. When we live in fear, we leave ourselves with extreme polarized choices. That's it. Fight or flight. Yeah. The sky's gonna go, the sky's gonna fall, or I have to get the hell out of here. That, yeah. That's it. But if we can release ourselves from fear, there's an enormous range of options available to us. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, if we live in fear, that's it. We see it. But but the what the, the amazing thing is, like the more you go through life you realise that all decisions are nowhere near as binary as you first think they are. Exactly. And and life ends up happening. Like, you know, all of the great opportunities of your life, the greatest opportunities of, of your life. Like, okay, my current job, which is brilliant. Love my current job. But there's still days where I get angry about how we do a story or like, I'm, you know what, there's some weeks where I'm just exhausted at the end of it. I love my job, but, you know, 
there are days where I go, God, I wish I was out just doing stand-up, just on the road doing stand-up because there's so much less pressure on it. I don't have to deal with a network, like all of those sorts of things. And just in that, you go, all right, I got offered this job and I was going, wow, that's the most money I'm ever going to make. This is the best possible job in the world. But the moment you do it, you go, oh, actually, you know, nothing's perfect up close. And it's the same with bad outcomes. When something bad happens and you have to deal with it, it's never quite as bad as you imagine it's going to be. Never. You know, and and the world is a grey area. Everything is a grey area. If it was that simple, governments would be perfect and we'd have no deficits and there'd be no war, yeah. right? But everything is a fucking grey area. So you have to get used to that and get comfortable with it, Yeah. you know? And within that grey area, you try to you try to pick which things you are resolute about. Which are the things that are so important that you go, do you know what? I want to lift that up out of the grey area and put that somewhere somewhere special. I want to elevate that. And, and you've got to pick those things hmm. rather than always making this binary choice. So when you were at school and then you were being more challenged by this kind of more structured environment, did the, did the class clowning and either you were really good with your toes or... <laughs> no, someone's licking my hands. Um, <laughs> That's that is Kennedy. That's uh, that's no members of my family. Uh-huh. But, um, <laughs> when you got to the end of school and, and, and you went to university, I'm, I'm guessing there wasn't many people like you in school. That you were the you were the one, or you're of a minority of the kid that was that smart and that funny. Um, I don't know. Well, I was really lucky. I had this amazing group of friends at school. Yeah, right. Which, as it turns out, I haven't stayed in contact. with with that much that's been a bit just the way I dedicate myself okay. to it but that's 20 people. years man that's alright yeah um, but I had a group of friends that all shared a sense of humour like we would sit around at lunchtime just cracking jokes we were and we were the we weren't of any clique like we were not the jocks we were not like the rich good looking ones we weren't the nerds like we were just our own thing and we kind of ran separately to all of the other dynamics that were going on. No one hated us. You know, occasionally I'd end up having a fight with one of the jocks who was being a fuckhead and there had to be a fight, you know, or I'd get bullied, you know, and there was bullying that went on through school. But just what I consider to be a natural amount of bullying, nothing too extreme, nothing. I I think I was fortunate that I always had this, I always had a certain confidence that would mean the bullying never really got through to me. I'd kind of see see it for what it was um but even that was a conscious choice like my i've just always felt like everyone's kind of more in control than they think they are a lot of the time and and it's like if you know, people that succeed and you know, mm. things that, you know, the people that you envy or the people that, that things seem to go really well for them or have done things that you wish you could do or, or whatever they are. There's a number of things they have in common. I, I now understand that the one thing everyone that succeeds has in common is they work harder than everyone else. That's that's true. When you're a kid, you don't get that. Um, ah, Kennedy. I'm protected. I feel so protected. Yeah, she's she's a vicious mighty beast, vicious terrier. Um, uh, but one one thing I figured out early was, and it's purely a logical uh, an exercise of logic, is you'll never achieve everything if you don't believe you can. Like if you don't believe it's possible, at least, or that you could do it. And that's the other thing that like 
everyone that does something good believed they could do it or believed in it enough to try. Mm-hmm. And from there, I kind of developed little mantras for myself, which are, you know, like never be intimidated by anyone. You had that as a teenager? Yeah. Wow, I kind of started when I, when I was a teenager because it just occurred to me that like, that w- what good comes from being intimidated? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, how, how can you... How can you properly deal with difficult situations if you're overwhelmed by them or, or if you, you know... But you had that as a teenager is like amazing and a superpower. I've only come to realise that in the last two or three years. Yeah, I'm... That's an absolute superpower. Or I was the most arrogant kid ever. I don't know. But I, I don't think I was... I was never arrogant. I just kind of made a bunch of decisions which were like, nah, fuck it, you get one crack at this, so... Let's let's just let's just try and Full let's on. just try and weed out the dumb stuff. That, that's all it was. And, and but then I, I developed an amazing knack for other dumb stuff that would get me into trouble and and that would cause me difficulty. But even that has worked out over time. That what I was doing was filtering out the things that mm. the things that I like and am passionate about from the things that I'm not. And it turns out that if I can get rid of more of the things that I'm not pass- passionate about. And focus on the things that I am passionate about. Things tend to go a lot better, you know. Like that's sorting over time or whatever it is. But so, so hang on. So, through high school, uh, both my parents are doctors, and they were all, they were quite disappointed that none of us boys, was four of us, never none of us wanted to go near medicine. Were your parents trying to steer you towards pharmacy or anything like that? Complete opposite. My dad was like, "You're not going to be a pharmacist because pharmacy pharmacy's hard. It's like." It's like most of the knowledge, you know, most of the skills and knowledge required for a doctor, but with just a little bit less respect in the community and, and, and with a massive retail component. Yeah. Like, so my dad is not only like an expert in what medicine does to someone, he knows how to like manage customer relations with the community so they keep coming back. So it's not just, so every time they come to get their script, they also go, oh, maybe I do need a traveling nail kit or what, you know, like... All of the elements, the difference between just dispensing drugs and having a successful business, it's customer service. And, and, and customer service is an exhausting thing to do. And my dad was always a small business owner who carried it all on his shoulders. And this is did, before the consolidation of the like, Amcals and My Chemist Warehouse yeah, and all he, that stuff. He was like early Amcal before it was a behemoth. It was like right. Amcal was an early... Amcal early on was just like, hey... It's cheaper if we all, it's like a commune. Yeah. Like we go, or like a co op. It's yeah. like if we all print the boxes as one thing, we'll get a cheaper print run. And if we order the drugs as one big thing, and then, do, you know, like yeah. that's a better business model. Um, but it wasn't like we are going to put a giant warehouse somewhere and that's going to kill every small pharmacy in the area and just suck everyone into it. You know, um, it was a very personal. Game, yeah, and always, always have been. I love my pharmacist in Bondi. She knows everything about everybody. Yeah, she really does. And the great thing about Bondi is you can't fit a chemist warehouse anywhere in Bondi. That's the great. Everything's so small. Like she's awesome. No one could afford. She knows everyone's secrets. That woman. Yeah, I bet she. So, uh, (laughs) but so you went. You studied. You went into law. Yeah, I I finished high school, and I knew I was going to try to get into law from about year nine. Wow. It was the thing that most made sense. But the, the, the real truth to it is I knew when I was 12 that I wanted to be a comedian. I had no doubt about it. Just that was all I wanted to do. It was the thing I most wanted to do. And it came from like it was two things. 
my grandma gave me a Billy Connolly tape and I listened to it and I would listen to that every night in my room as I was falling asleep and I would shut my eyes and I would just imagine standing in front of an audience making them laugh and like I'd imagine I was Billy Connolly listening to it, telling stories, singing songs, making people laugh and it was just like I just – I'd shut my eyes and go, I could not imagine a better thing to do for a living than that. Like that is that is absolutely the most wonderful thing you could do. And, and that happened at the same time that back in grade four when I was getting into trouble before I skipped a grade. It's one of the greatest gifts anyone that was angry with me ever, ever gave me. And my grade four teacher, Mr. Chisholm, Rod Chisholm, um, he said, you've got to stop cracking jokes in class. And he said, you're funny. And I said, really? You think I'm funny? Like that's all I cared about. And he goes, yeah, you're funny. Like he said, very Monty Python but you've got to calm down and let people work. And I just went home and I said to mum, what's Monty Python? And mum got the life of Brian on video and we watched it. And that was just like, you can fucking do that? <laughs> like, I, you know, like as a kid, you had no idea that that was possible. Like the level of, the level of commentary throughout all of Monty Python, there is, there is some really strong satire that even a, even as a kid I got that that was going on but the silliness of it the disrespect for all of the cliches that hold the world together at the same time using those cliches as weapons in your fight like watching Life of Brian and I and I got it the first time I watched it I was like that is one of the greatest things ever done by any group of people that film right there is amazing so after that I'm listening to Billy Connolly I'm watching Monty Python and I also grew up in a house. This was, this, I was very lucky. My dad has a great sense of humour. He's a great practical joker. I've written a book about my dad as a practical joker. But he loved comedy. And I grew up, The Party with Peter Sellers, mm. we, we had that on video. I would watch that every weekend with my dad. We'd watch that and laugh our asses off. And, and just we would watch, like we'd watch MASH together and we'd watch, like he would make me watch shows that he grew up watching and thought were funny and and there was this constant education going on without me realising it and my dad teaching me that comedy is important. Comedy is a very important thing to have in the world, to have in society. Without comedy, life's probably not worth it. If we can't laugh at stuff, life's a bit tough. But the but the both and if I'm not was it the Billy Connolly one where he sings a song about the stainless steel wellies was it that one No no it wasn't I got to that later Fuck that's great too But that's, this this one he sang um it was well, it was amazing a he sang a version yeah, it, yeah but this was like it was the pick of Billy Connolly so it was a little bit later and there's a couple of songs on it and I remember he sings a cover of um, D I V O R C E mm. and he, where he starts playing around with the spelling of things and it becomes really, really funny. And it's, a, you know, it's a really simple parody song, but at the time no one else was doing parody songs like that. Um, but it was the stories. To me it was just he could tell a story and he could take a tiny joke and make it half an hour long. 
with three other stories woven into it, and there was yeah. just something about it. And it wasn't that kind of set up, punch, set up, punch, stand up, American stand up. Yeah, it was a. I'm just going to talk to you like I'm at a dinner party, and I'll yeah. tell you that time when I was growing up in Glasgow. Yeah, and da 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 da, and of course I eat, but because I eat, yeah. da, 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 da. and the, and then halfway through, and you know, why is with that? You know, like, yeah. have you ever? You know, like, and and that whether it's whether he'd done that ten nights in a row by the time it was recorded. It felt real in a way that that old nightclub, you American nightclub stand-up didn't feel real. Yeah, and they, and I love how he would take you, and he would take you down a path for twenty minutes, and then go, yeah, that's right, octopus, and yeah. he'd come back, and you go, we've been away for twenty minutes, and now we get to come back for the punchline of this joke that he could do that. And getting back to fear, so many stand-ups are too scared to do stuff like that. So so many stand-ups. Are paranoid about the attention span of their audience that they're just going. No, got to keep telling the story because if I go like I, if I if I dawdle, they'll all get up and storm out of the room, which has never happened. Here's the you thing know. about Billy Connolly: there's large parts of his tapes when you listen. To, I say tapes because that's where I first heard them. Where there's no laughter, yeah, and it's just him telling a story, and you're just charmed by it. And there's a, there's a little giggle every thirty seconds or so, but it's not this like big as uh, what's his name, Steve. Oh, it does Family Feud. It does Family Feud in the oh. states? Black guy, Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey. Yeah, he's like if I can get a big house, Kings of Comedy. He says, "Yeah, all I'm looking for is that big house laugh every eight to ten seconds." Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Eight to ten. Yeah, seconds. Yeah, that's that's some writing. That's like getting in the lab. Yeah, and like getting oh, the, getting the yeah, set square like, out. Yeah, it's <laughs> that's like surgical. And but they're, they're like they're different. They're different sciences. But that Kings of, that. Um, that Kings of Comedy movie is pretty instructive. Uh, it's instructive for white people to go. There's some jokes you just don't get. Did you, you get know, like, nerdy like, into that? Like, like, did you did you study? Did you go? Ah, oh, so that's how Connolly does it, and this is how Carlin does it. He's telling stories, but they're yeah. I, I I studied like I, I from that age I was studying comedy and in in like constantly I would every night fall asleep listening to stand-up comedy in my room and I'd listen to some albums if I liked them over and over and over again there were like I was lucky like one there's this amazing guy called Dave Taranto um who he sadly passed away of a brain tumor um and he was the godfather of like not yeah he was kind of the I don't know, the spiritual centre of comedy in Melbourne. He ran a room called The Cheese Shop, which was which was and is still remembered as the greatest comedy room in Melbourne. He ran... He, the Cheese Shop had a radio show where he'd play great comedy on, on PBS Radio on the weekend. And so I'm in high school. I've never been to The Cheese Shop. But one day on the weekend, on a study break, I listen to Cheese Shop and I hear Bill Hicks talking about his UFO comedy tour. And I heard Bill Hicks and I was like, that it, was, it was that lightning bolt that I haven't had since um, Life like of Brian. the first time you hear Hendrix. You go, what? Yeah. It, you, you can do that? Yeah. And that was, and the, the amazing thing was, he said, like, uh, Tarando said, this guy's amazing. And he played this thing. I was going, wow, it's fucking great. And then, and then he goes, this guy's coming out to the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And this is like, a, I think it was like a year before Bill Hicks died, he came out and I bought a ticket 
and I went and saw Hicks and it was like fucking no one was there. Like there was, it was a tiny audience and it wasn't a big deal, but I saw Hicks. And it was like, it was like, no one's ever done that. And the thing was, by that stage, if I'm being brutally honest, Hicks wasn't what he was because he, he was very sick and, you know, like or he was starting to be really sick and his stand-up had really changed. There was a lot more anger in what he was doing. The stuff of Hicks that I really got into was um, like dangerous and relentless, which were mm. what – and a lot of people take the wrong lessons from Hicks in my, in my opinion – he was the funniest. Like, he had, he had those big laughs every eight to ten seconds. He really did. But then he figured you could really be saying something the whole time. And How and old so, were you when you were watching? Oh, you were in a room with Bill Hicks at how yeah, old? Yeah, I would have been, I, I think, 15 or God. around then. Maybe even, maybe around there. That's just a, that's just a... But that's oh. the thing was like I'm, I'm lucky to grow up in Melbourne, who where there was a comedy festival and yeah, you there could was, see that didn't happen things. in Brisbane and, and the and the creators yeah the creators of the comedy festival did a, a monumental service to Melbourne in that they brought comedy from around the world and showed it to I saw the Mighty Boosh before that like in 2000 I saw Mighty Boosh do Arctic Boosh and I was like like I've been very fortunate in what I've seen. Um, but yeah, if it weren't for Dave Taranto, I would never have heard Bill Hicks. It would have taken me a lot longer to get to that, you know. Like, and and that's the thing. You and what a lot of people don't get about comedy is almost every comedian is a, is a student of comedy. Like they study and they go, all right, but I get that. I know that. Every musician's a student. This yeah. is the thing. You go to music school. You learn how to. You build the base. You sit there in the woodshed for hours. You learn your chops. You learn your skills. You do your scales. You learn your rudiments. Yeah. You play standards. You play, can you play Rachmaninoff? If you can play Rachmaninoff, then you can play this. Can yeah. you play, I don't know, can you play Eruption from Eddie Van Halen? <laughs> you know, can you play... Which the, is a tough leap from Rachmaninoff to Eruption. Well, as a guitar player, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a beatboxer, can you do If Your Mother yeah. Only Knew by Razel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, that's the thing. If you're, a scratch, if you're a DJ, can you do the, 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 the crab scratch from Cubit? Like, yeah. it's a, there's rudiments you have to learn. And then on top of that is where you build your own style. Yeah. Why should comedians not study? That's the thing. Well, comedians have to study, but here's the thing. There is nothing worse than... Like, there are things that exist that are schools for comedy, and they can teach you some structures and they can teach you some techniques. But you can spot someone a mile off when they've come through a, a comedy university because you can't see them at all. They come on stage and they do their stuff and you know nothing about them. You do not hear their voice. You never get a... What you're seeing is someone doing what they think a comedian's meant to be like, which essentially is what all comedians do when they start out. I started out trying to sound like Bill Hicks. Terrible mistake for a 22-year-old white kid who grew up middle class from Melbourne to try and tell everyone how the world was meant to be. That was a disaster. But, but I figured that out quickly enough to completely start again and go fuck that's right bill hicks was doing bill hicks i've got to go and figure out figure out what doing charlie pickering is and um the the thing is you can study and you can learn and you go i love this because that works because that structure is brilliant because you you learn that by listening but you can't be taught it in the way that music is taught because comedy is essentially about finding your voice and you can't find your voice if you're always trying to replicate other things and, and trying to work within structures that everyone else has. 
And it's the toughest. It's the toughest thing, it, it, but it's what all comics have to do. I think about a lot when I read uh, American Scream, the Bill Hicks book. When I read that, and I hear that, and the absolute tragedy of it was, as he's dying, he gets the Channel Four show. Like yeah. as he's like the recognition that he never got in the states. And I think, like I, you know, I look at the Daily Show and I'm just like, ah, oh, like what the, if Hicks was behind the desk? Yeah. You know what? What would Hicks have done? Like I think now, like what? Yeah. Could, what could Hicks have done in this world now? Well, he'd be. I think in to his some. 50s. I think to some extent. I think to some extent you have to say what Hicks did was achieve the Daily Show because you know that John Stewart was listening to Bill Hicks records. Yeah, you know, like like I've never read an interview where he's mentioned it. I don't know that for sure. Daily Show can't exist without Bill Hicks having happened. Like that, that's just to me, it is unfeasible to imagine that that is the case. The Republican beast is dead. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> but have a look yeah. at the subtlety, the subtlety that Stuart and Colbert achieve um, in context with the brutality required by Hicks to do that in after eight years of Reagan. Like, you know, yeah. like that's a, it's a really different paradigm to operate in, but also the world has gotten more sophisticated. Comedy... Comedy is heaps better than it was in the 90s. And there was a lot of great comedy in the 90s. Like Eddie Izzard, Eddie Izzard was amazing. Ross Noble in the 90s, weaving magic out of thin air. Like the, some things that went on in the 90s were, were brilliant, but also there was a terrible strain of comedy that was just... If you said something with enough attitude, that was comedy. Or, you know, like it's, it's like that, you know that episode of The Simpsons where Krusty takes... A, Krusty kind of becomes George Carlin slash Bill Hicks. Like, you know, he's a telling it like it is stand-up comic. And it was a horrible time where there were a lot of people who... It wasn't funny enough, man. Like, you know, it lost the funny. It was, it was all attitude, no content. Uh-huh. And, you know... Um, and that, once again, that's, that's the, as I said, the mistake that a lot of people take from Hicks is going, oh, so the key's being angry. All right, I'm going to do angry guy stand up. It's like, no, fuckhead. The key was being funny. The key was being funny no matter what you're talking about. That meant it was okay for him to be angry because he was already the funniest guy in the room. And that's like, that, but so many people don't fucking get that, you know. Yeah. Um, when, I was, when I was doing Idol, uh, it's unfortunately gone now. Uh, not Idol, when I was doing Batch. It's 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 gone, and I think it's the last. I'll never see it again in my lifetime. It was this incredible, incredible DVD store up the street in Bondi, the kind where they put the post-it notes on the covers, different colours for the different people that work there. Yeah, you know, it's the DVD store you think Kevin Smith worked at or Quentin Tarantino worked at. It's that store. Yeah, and there was one section I can't remember her name. She started with an F. I think it was like Freya or Fran or Fiona. She, I loved all of her section, and I was just. I just. This going, is a pretty obtuse way to ask her out. Like you could have just no, asked no, her, no, man. I didn't ask you her. <laughs> But they had a DVD box set of like it was uh, relentless, it was um, uh, dangerous, and it was um, not the really good one that's on iTunes with all the animations, but another documentary about him. But yeah, it yeah, had yeah. some really old uh, Texas yeah, footage the, of him on high eight, which would have been him talking about his family. Yeah, yeah, like he him was doing jokes shot, about his dad's agubernation and he was like fifteen, or yeah. sixteen when he started. Yeah. And, you, and honestly, you just sit there and you just watch it, and it's just a fucking masterclass. You just yeah. watch it. I remember he, I heard Hicks hundreds of hours before I ever saw Hicks. I had no idea how physical he was. I had absolutely no idea that he was falling over. There's, he yeah. was jumping around. I, I had there's no two. Th- there's two things that 
He was great with sound and he was great with movement. And most people focus on his words. Like most things that the things that everyone remembers are, are his words, mm. but he used sound the way that um, Richard Pryor used sound, that uh, Bill Cosby used sound. The the mic is a, is is another tool, and and the person who does it the best in Australia is Tom Gleeson. If you go and see Tom Gleeson do stand up, he uses those sounds. It's it's funny. I talk about Tom's Tom's another uh, Tom and I talk about comedy for hours, but he was. His foundational stand-up was Richard Pryor, and, mm. and mine was probably it's somewhere between Billy Connolly and Bill Hicks. But like Pryor's one of, like the greatest. Oh, Pryor's incredible. I just came to him later, so mm. it had you know it had I was it was going on top of the software I'd already loaded by the time mm-hmm. I got there. Yeah. Um, but uh, oh, actually, no, I borrowed a Richard Pryor video from the video shop around about the time that I was doing Monty Python, and I watched it. And I was like, I'm too young to know what any of this is about. Like, I'm just going, none of my friends are speedballing. Like, you know, like... like I was a sayer. And it was like, I get, the rhythms are good. And, but, and so in my mind, it was just, I, I know that I've got to put Richard Pryor to one side and then grow up a bit and then I can come back and get it. I was the same, you know? just only when you mentioned it, I remember him doing the whole bit about doing heroin and he's standing on stage doing, yeah. he takes 10 minutes to nod off on stage. He takes that long. And we're just going, this isn't delirious. This isn't raw. Why isn't this funny like that? Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't funny. get it. <laughs> but when I think about it now, he took 10 minutes yeah. to reenact what it's like to nod off on heroin yeah, on and who, stage. And who, who does that? Like, that's oh. fucking amazing. But um, But yeah, like, all of those things, like, along the way, like, and you can see it there. Comedians can talk about whether well, the time I heard this bit or the first time yeah. I saw that thing. And, you know, that's just... But you had to start putting it, loads it all you in had your to head. start putting it into practice. At what point? Like you're doing you're doing law at universities. Everything's everything's going to plan. What was the I have to get up on stage moment? What was oh, the law was the cover for getting on stage? Ah, the other thing I knew was that Monty Python. They all started out doing shows at university. Footlights, yeah, yeah. Um, Clive James started at Footlights. Like all my like a lot of my Fry heroes, and Laurie. Fry and Laurie, a lot of my heroes. British universities started doing comedy there, and I and also in Australia, Degeneration, like uh, Steve Visor started doing stuff at law school. Like you know, there was a um, a long line of people who used that opportunity to be creative and get into comedy. And so the moment, literally two weeks into uni, I signed up for the law review, and I I went and audition, and all the kids were they were all like five years older than me. And I was like young, and there was a sense like when I rocked up to the audition, there was a little bit of a, okay, all right, you know, like I was a bit young. I rocked up with shit that I'd written, gave them like I gave them scripts, and then I was like, all right, what do you want? What do you want me to do? And I, I was like some kind of idiot savant, like I'd studied, you know, like. Just as I'd studied to get into uni, I'd been studying comedy to know all the words to everything ever, and and I'd written some other st- written this stuff myself, and and so I was I arrived and I was like, the fact that I'm young hasn't stopped me ever before. It's not going to stop me now. Turns out I care more about this than anyone in the room. If you know what I mean, like, and and I just had that attitude, and I worked with an amazing bunch of people on that law review, and that was the first. It's the first law review I did. I was, I ended up. I was in four law reviews, 
Like I did my first four years, I was in law reviews, and then I directed and produced another three on top of that. Over seven years at uni, I did a full-scale comedy production every year. Right. Um, and, and I put more time into that than I did into my education. And, and in hindsight, one of my regrets is that I never studied abroad or I didn't get, a really, get really good grades or anything like that. But the whole time, I knew that I was investing in what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so just for folks, I, I'm guessing the Law Review is a show that you put on. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, it's, right. a, it's a show put on at the, um, by the law faculty. It's the Law Student Society put it on. And it's like you spend fucking months writing it and rehearsing it. And it's a lot of drinking and smoking joints and laughing. And, you know, like there's a social aspect to it, but it feels cool. How like many nights do you do? You end up doing two weeks of six nights a week. So you do 12 shows, and, and right. which, is a, which is a proper run. In a big room? Well, yeah. That year, the guys that were running it, and they'll feature <laughs> like the, I, I kept working with them for quite a while. They were they were similar to me. They wanted to do this for a living, and um, so they took the producing of it really seriously. And I learned from them how to produce. So the smallest audience I performed to was two hundred people, like at uni. Which once you start doing comedy festivals on your own, two hundred people is like proper acts performed to two hundred people a night. So we were, you know, we we're playing big rooms and we produced it well. And um, it was funny. I then got the guys that I'd done plays with at school that did the tech. They came in and they were my tech guys, and they tech, tech did the lighting and sound for the shows. Um, and they ended up doing lighting and sound for all of those shows, and then did lighting and sound for my first few comedy festival shows. Like you know, there was a real team that mm. started to put together with this, and, and an attitude of we're building a business. You know, like the, we're building something that's going to have to operate outside the rarefied environment of the uh, a university at some point. But the great thing about law reviews was you didn't have to be that funny to be fucking hilarious. Like. If you would, you could do jokes about fucking law cases that everyone had studied, and people would laugh their asses off. You try and do that in the real world, and people will hate you so much, and it will be dreadful. But it's that's all just about knowing your audience. And we had a great home ground advantage for, you know, for five years or so at law school, playing to people that you know your experience was identical to their experience. You knew what they knew, and there was stuff to talk about. But we were always pushing to write things that could work just in the real world outside that and so you went you graduated did you ever actually did you pass the bar did you practice as a lawyer i um i finished and i graduated and i got i got articles in a big law firm it was the big firm that i wanted to work in if i was a lawyer it was where i wanted to be and i worked for a week and and i left i hang on that's the dogs chasing something i um i was there for a week and I spent the week, as I said, I'm competitive. And so I was there going, all right, so what does success look like in this environment? I'm like, oh, well, it's the senior partners, the guys in the corner offices. Awesome. And I looked at them and none of them were happy. All of them hated their jobs. They were all like 40 kilos overweight, barely knew their... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wives can barely remember the names of their kids. And you know when you started a job, you try and get in first to impress people and you try to leave last to impress people? They were always already in before I got there and they were always still there when I left. And I was just like, why work up to anything if you're going to work those hours and hate it? Like money can't be that great. And it's not. Money, like, you know, like nothing is worth that. Like I genuinely feel that. If you love it, fine. You can work around the clock doing it. That's your prerogative. But like I was sitting there going, do you know what? I know that this is never going to make me happy. Like I just, I just had this really clear moment on the Friday. I just said, this is never going to make me happy. And so then I thought, well, I've got to go. Like logic, the logical next step is, if this is never going to make me happy, it is foolish to remain another, another minute. So I went to the HR department. I said, look, I never really traveled while I was at uni. I didn't take a year off before starting here. And I, oh, I'm starting to think I missed out. I'm feeling a bit burnt out after uni. So can I actually defer for a year and come back in a year's time? And they said, fine, that, that's good. They were very supportive. That was kind of a done thing. But this is a firm that would, like they'd recruit like 30, like 30 kids out of uni a year. Like the firm did not rely on me in any way. Yeah, right. Um, and I did not travel. I just pursued comedy. And there'd been some other stuff going before then, like it wasn't just out of nowhere. Halfway through uni, the guys that I'd done that first law review with, um, when I was in third year, we got together for a beer and they were like, we, we think we want to do a comedy festival show. Do you reckon you can do it? You know, can you balance that with studying? And they were all working in firms and stuff by then. And, um, and I said, shit, yeah, that's all I want to do. So we took a bunch of the sketches that we'd done in that first year together a couple of sketches that they'd done before I met them, um, a couple of sketches I'd since done in other shows, and then we wrote a bunch of sketches. And we got it down to about 15 sketches, and it was a group of six of us. We were called Enter the Datsun, which in hindsight is an awful name, but maybe it's cool again. I don't know. But anyway, it was, you know, and we had this weird 70s kung fu vibe to our marketing, and we put it on in the Starangata Hotel in South Melbourne, over the comedy festival, we were on for two weeks and we, we exploited every personal contact. We had every network that we were a part of and we sold out the whole run and we put on this comedy festival show and we got a great review in The Age and we were like, this is it. It's starting now. Got to do this. But I had to keep studying. And then so what we did is we did another show the next year. We moved up to St Martin's Theatre, which was a 350-seat theatre. And once again, we... We were relatively smart. We'd go around to all the law firms we knew and do deals with their social groups and sell like blocks of 60 tickets at every firm. So we sold out a year there and we did another year. And and then the third year we did a comedy play. Like 
It was called Island the Musical and it had songs because one of our guys, Richie Pyrus, was an amazing musician. Um, and by then, but by then the group was four. Like well, there was some attrition over time. By then it was four guys. We did Island the Musical and it was a full play about four guys that wash up on an island and try to form a society. And it was, it was literally Lord of the Flies meets South Pacific. Like it was in a 350-seat theatre, sold every ticket. Wow. Like it... Kind of shouldn't have worked, right? So turning up to a law firm, wearing a nice new shirt, lugging enormously heavy boxes up and down staircases because only the partners get to use the lift, you're like, nah. Yeah. This, this is shit. This is not it. <laughs> this, is not, this is not showbiz, man. And, um, because it, I just asked because it, 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 it does take a lot to quit something. It does take a lot. And you really have to sit around and really think, no, this is not for me. Yeah. And that it's, it's okay that if it's not for you, to say no to it. Yeah. You don't no, have that's right. to do stuff. And, and people need to know when you're 22, 23, you've got plenty of time. Like, you know, you're kind of, you're made to feel when you're finishing uni that pressure's on to become partner straight away or whatever it's it fear, is. Man. Like, yeah, it's, it's fear. fear. It's all fear again. The, the only tricky part about leaving the law firm was um, my parents who were disappointed like you know they really felt I'd worked hard and gotten to a point and, and they had that feeling of parents like if a parent can make a lawyer then they feel they've done their job as a parent you know and uh and my mum when I told them my mum was like washing some dishes in the kitchen and then she would occasionally just like she just went quiet she went quiet for about half an hour and she would she was washing the dishes and then she'd just look out the back window and go <sighs> And then just keep washing the dishes, and like it was tearing me apart. But I like I knew I had to. I knew it was what I had to do. My dad was very practical. Practical. He was just like, "Oh, well, how are you going to make a living? How's this going to work?" And uh, and I just assured him that I'd I'd make it work. You know, admittedly, it involved me moving back in with my parents, and like you know, there were some. They had to make sacrifices for my dream, which is unfair. But parents, so often, that's what they do. You know. Um, and so two things happen around this time. Well, actually, I'll, I'll go back a bit. The interesting thing about Into the Datsun, who'd had this amazing out-of-the-gate success for a new com- sketch comedy group, is we then, during comedy festivals, because we were selling so many tickets, we got invited to do like a gig at the festival club, which is, you know, like the nightly, late-night stand-up room. And we went there and we fucking died. We died on our hole. And no one really wanted to talk to us because we weren't comics that had hung out with them on the circuit all the time during the year. In the world of professional comedians, we were upstarts and no one, like, and we went in with a product that could not work in a stand-up environment. And a lot of soul-searching came from that because we had never bombed ever. Yeah, right. Right. And, oh, it was awful. And, And we just talked about it afterwards. And the thing was, within our group, there were different ideas of why it didn't work. Some blamed the sound, some, you know, like, some blamed we were on really late, the noise from the bar, and I was just like, nah, the stand-up on before us fucking killed. There was nothing wrong with the room. We didn't do what the audience needed us to do in that, in that moment. So we went away from there, and this was all kind of going on at the, at, around the same time. And a number of things happened. We, this Danish filmmaker called Henrik Danefjord 
who's an amazing bloke. He runs Exit Films, and they they're huge now, and they were they were pretty big at the time. They were in a warehouse in Richmond, um, and he. He shot ads. That was his thing. He shot ads. And within his stable, there were guys that shot film clips and documentaries. But it was all in this production house. And it was an amazingly creative environment. It felt like Andy Warhol's factory Mm -hmm. without the drugs. Like, it was Andy Warhol's factory with a working business model and a production output. Like, it was really good. And he'd heard about us and came and saw what we were doing. And he kind of had some ideas that it'd be great if his company made some television. And they, no one was making television. So we went into business with him, entered the Datsun, went into business with Exit. We formed a company called Exit Vision. And our job was to get on TV. And it's what we always wanted. And, and there was no money. But what he did is he gave us an office. Like he, he built an office within the warehouse for us, gave us all the old computers that they had that they didn't want anymore. And they, you know, that was what we wrote on. And we had all the money we'd saved up from doing our shows and that was our budget, our production budget. And he gave us all the editing equipment. So I learned to edit on Avid and Mm -hmm. and shoot on cameras so it didn't look awful and learned how to record things with decent sound so you could actually show it to someone and them not think you were an idiot. And we set about trying to make television. So that was one of the strategies of of our group coming out of this gig that didn't work was, well, maybe what we do isn't meant for stand-up rooms, maybe... It's meant for television. Uh So we're going to pursue that. At the same time within the group, me and Michael Chamberlain, who was writing for the group, he wasn't on stage, he was was part of the writing team. He wanted to do stand-up and I wanted to do stand-up. And so we said, well, let's start doing stand-up together. Is that because you were competitive and you wanted to be able to walk into that room and crush that room? No. Oh, the stand-up room? Yeah. Yeah, well... Yeah, not necessarily competitive. Uh, uh, to me, yeah, maybe it is competitive. Maybe, maybe it's just, no, that was a problem I hadn't solved yet. Do you know what I mean? Like that was, that was a job left undone. I like, want to be able to walk into any room and do anything and get the, yeah. Yeah, and that, that just, but also kind of wanted to be like Billy Connolly and Bill Hicks. Like, I, you yeah. know, like, like a stand-up room to me was nothing to abandon. A stand-up to me, room to me was something to, like go and throw myself into and make it work, you know. Um, and and Michael always wanted to do that. So Michael and I, one thing we figured out, we started doing a couple of gigs. My first gig went really well. My first down gig was fucking great. And then uh, the problem was that made me think I could do stand-up. The next three gigs were just dreadful. And then I went, I just stopped doing stand-up for a while. Like it was a real ego blow and really took a beating. And then Michael and I were like, do you know what we figured out is that if you just sign up for open mic nights, you might get a gig about every three months. So somehow you're meant to improve what you're doing between one open mic gig and another one three months later. Like how the fuck are you meant to improve doing that? And so what we figured out was, well, we need to do a gig every week. That's how you improve. Mm -hmm. No one would give us a gig every week, so we started our own comedy room. Well, you have your own – you have your production team, you have – experience putting shows on yeah of course um so we did it for a fringe festival just for three weeks at the royal derby hotel in fitzroy and it was low budget we stole a light from work from like exit films and used that it was inappropriate for the purpose but it was a bright light it lit the stage it didn't matter um and 
we started doing this comedy room and it just went really well. Like, and we took terms emceeing. Like one of us would emcee one week and the other would do a five-minute set and we'd hire other comedians to be in the room so it was worth coming to. And we just had this strategy that we'd alternate emceeing and we'd alternate doing spots and we'd put pressure on each other to write new material every week and get better. And so we were doing that. That was our little thing that we were doing off on the side. Exit Films was, was going. Exit Films went well. We had great creative ideas but we never got breakthroughs. Um, we made a TV pilot that was like very well made for at, – at the time, no one had access to digital anything and we did. So the standard was really high. The jokes were good. It was called And the Winner Is and it was, a, it was like a mockumentary about five average Aussies who wanted to compete at the Sydney 2000 Olympics and they were – Weird ass characters. I played Bruce, who was a taekwondo, who wanted to do taekwondo, but I had full on Bruce Lee obsessions. Um, there were there were all these just all these other characters. One was a swimmer. One was um, one was a swimmer. One was a rower. One was a runner. It's a taekwondo guy, and um, I can't remember the other, but it was good. It was, it was actually really good. It wasn't perfect, but no, the first time it? you make anything, we pitched it everywhere, but we, we could barely get a meeting. We, but the, and no one went for it, and we just couldn't understand why because everything had kind of gone our way. You know, like every time we did anything, it was like, oh, things work out when we do it. And so we started to hit some You had road. no reason to believe it wouldn't. Yeah, so we started to hit some roadblocks, and it was really hard because we really believed it, and we thought the idea was so strong. We thought whoever... Like we just couldn't believe that Channel 7, who were covering the Olympics, wouldn't want a, an Olympic-based sketch show leading up to it. We thought like everything about it was a great idea. Um, and it just didn't, you know, it just didn't yeah. happen. And that was, you know, that was, that was the first rejection. And, and it knocked us around. It was okay. Michael and I still had this other little comedy thing, you know, like stand-up thing we were starting. So, you know, we felt good there. Mm. That knocked us around. But then this other thing happened. And this was, this probably hurts more. Uh, Mick, one of the guys, um, uh, the dogs will make a little bit of noise now. That's all right. Hi. Hi, honey. I'm home. Hi. Um, Charlie's wife's just come home. Uh, so Mick, um, we're, you're going to want halfway through. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll get there soon. It's all right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a very good song. Um, okay. So Mick, um, Oh, around this time also, the guys that had quit their jobs in the law firms, money had gotten down to a point where they had to start working and trying to work in the production company as well. We kind of, you know, we'd gone all in on this pilot, um, but I'd moved back in with my parents, and I still like I could kind of just, I had the space to keep going a little bit longer, you know, like so I was yeah. full time doing that, and and I'd work on Sundays in a cafe running a coffee machine, or I'd worked in a music shop for a while, and you know. Um, so we were keeping it going, but there was strain. There was strain on it. It was, it was getting harder and rejection was going to make it impossible, if you know what I mean. But Mick, who's, who's a great lawyer, he's a, he's a really good lawyer um, and he was a lawyer for Telstra and has been. I think he still is. He's like, and, and Telstra through some of the most amazing technological growth mm. we'll ever know. And really early on, he was like, do you know that they're starting to be able to do video on the internet. And we were like, fuck off. It's too slow. How can, it doesn't, can't do that. And he goes, 
there's going to be video on the internet. And then he was like, that isn't pornography. Yeah, that isn't pornography. But this was even before it could be pornography, before that technology existed, right? right? I don't without know. Without porn, internet, porn, there'd be no YouTube. That is true. <laughs> without porn, there'd be no DVD. Without yeah. porn, there'd be no hi eight. Yeah. Um, a moment's silence for porn. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, uh, but he was like, look, Telstra are doing this thing called Big Pond, and, and to get people into the internet, they're trying to create this place where you've got stuff to go and see and it's going to be news articles and blah, blah, blah. And we were like, this doesn't, what? Like, this is, like, the internet's for email, man. You know, like, mm. it was hard for us all to get our head around it. All of us had dial-up. There was, we had, like, we had, like, Ethernet at work, but it was still fucking slow, right? Mm. You know, um, and, and he was like, nah, this will be a thing. And he, so he made some contacts at Telstra and was like, yeah, they, they liked the idea of some comedy videos on, on, on Big Pond. And so we were like, right, let's figure that out. And we became experts in internet video. We knew how to film something. We knew at the point of filming it how to, make, how to shoot something that the file would be small so when we compressed it, you could download it quicker. And it was, it was things like simple coloured backgrounds and you know, like, like block backgrounds, not moving backgrounds and... You know, things like that. Locked off shots were better than handheld shots. Like, we, through trial and error, no one told us. There was nowhere to look this shit up on the internet. We just worked with cameras and compressed stuff and figured it out. And we started to figure out exactly how to make video for the internet with all of the restrictions that currently existed. And we started making content. And then and we had this really cheap production model, which was like, all right, if we get a setup, like we're going to do a fake game show... All right, we're going to do a fake game show. We're going to write 20 sketches about a fake game show and we're going to shoot them all at once. So for one day's shoot, we get 22-minute sketches or 41-minute sketches. In the warehouse, upstairs in the warehouse where the film production studio was, for no reason, and we never understood why, there was an entire floor of the warehouse full of photocopiers, old broken photocopiers, for no reason. So we were like, all right, Let's write 20 sketches that involve a room full of 40 photocopiers. Like, and we would do that. And, and then I, along the way, I, there was a, an incident where I had my nose broken. And so I had to have my nose fixed at one point. So I'm going to be in a hospital bedroom on a drip having had my face fixed, right, without telling the hospital a full production team comes in when I'm recovering. The and we do three days shooting. The first day, I'm largely unconscious. So it's sketches involving someone unconscious in a bed. And then... Thank, thank you. you. Um, and then the next day, I was conscious so I could do some lines. And, then, and, and, it, and, and the thing is, for two days, the hospital didn't even realise we were doing it. Like, for two days, no one happened to come in while we were shooting. And then at one point, a doctor came in while we were, and there's a guy holding a boom over his head and there's a two camera shoot and it's going crazy. Um, but we, that's how we worked. Like we, we, we tried to be smart and it was a really exciting time to be doing what we were doing. And all this stuff was going up each week? Or? Well, here's the thing. We were making, we were making the pitch. Like we were, we were trying to do this to make all this content we could then sell them. And then it was like... Big Pond's goal, the technology hadn't risen to meet the goal. The sign-up to, like, you know, like cable internet. Early like, DSL. Yeah, early DSL. 56K motor. Yeah, it didn't match their expectation. 
and their business model changed and so they didn't want to buy all this content. So we'd, we'd done all this and I can't tell you, the first time, and it was literally like, I'm not lying, it was almost 10 years later that YouTube happened, right? It was almost, it, it was almost 10 years later. I almost cried. The first time I saw YouTube, I almost cried. I was like, we were 10 years too early. Yeah. Like, it, it could have been really different. Like, like it, and, I, and, and, and it was Mick and Tim also, the other guy, Mick Sheehy and Tim Grogan, amazing, funny guys. And they were kind of really behind the business vision of, of the production company and what we were doing. I was a lot more focused on creative than I was. I, I, I had an interest in but the business side of things. Though, Charlie, surely it serves you like writing that volume of stuff and figuring out what's funny and what's not funny. Oh. I mean, even though it didn't broadcast, even though it didn't go up. Well, there was another, there was another aspect of how this, how this worked. This is, so um, that was just a bit of a heartbreak because we thought we were onto something and we were ahead mm-hmm. of the curve. We're going to be the next fast forward. Yeah, yeah. That's, but of the internet, whatever the fuck that is. Yeah. You know, like it was... Yeah, it was more like we thought we were going to be the Steve Jobs of fucking comedy. Or, yeah, right. You know, um, the problem was that was kind of the last dash for Mick and Tim. Um, Tim had met an amazing, amazing girl. Oh, man, that's when, my, say, when my band broke up, it was like, well, we got jobs and girlfriends. Like, yeah, this whole being on the road thing. Yeah. Uh, not quite as good as regular sex and money. Yeah. See ya. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um we thought a band was going to be regular sex and money. No. It's different. It wasn't. Um, so, yeah, they had to go back to the real world. And so Michael and I, who'd been running this little comedy room, working together, developing a really good relationship, writing and stuff like that, we were like, well, I've got nowhere to go. If you've got anywhere to go, I was like, no, we're going to do this. And there were, there were some other writers around and we worked with them. Um, but it, it really became us at that point. And we were like, well, during the week... There's no reason why we should stop filming sketch shows. No, filming sketches. Mm-hmm. We're shooting all this stuff, but the goal's not goal's not internet anymore. That's that's gone away. That's not a thing. Turns out, turns out the internet's not going to be anything. Like, <laughs> video on the internet never going to happen. Um, so what else do we want to do? We were like, well, how about we just try to make our comedy room the best thing in in town. So we're going to shoot sketches with a production budget that no one else has got, with equipment that no one else has got. And, and we're going to screen shoot, them in the room? And we screen them in the room. So we start doing this stand... Like, when we start that as a weekly thing that we do ongoing, like every week, 52 weeks a year, maybe a couple of weeks off over Christmas, but we are like, right, at the end of the first lot of stand-up, going into the break, we're going to play sketches. There's going to be three sketches. And that was like called Sketchpad, Right. So there's our sketches for the week. Then we've got a break, more stand-up. At the end of the second lot of stand-up, we've got an episode of a serial that we're making. The, the one, one that I remember that we made was USAU, and it was like a parody of 90210. And it was, but it, it was like really happy and positive, but also really fucking dark. Like there were, like, and so within our group, we kind of had some people would be working on USAU, and, they, and, the, and their job was to cast it and... You know, get all the actors, and it was kind of like an ongoing trop fist, trop fest film. That thing yeah. was going on, and Charlie Clawson, who you might know from the Tofop podcast, mm-hmm. Clawson was part of this as well. Right. Um, he was part of the writing at Into the Day. like, like I met him through Michael. 
So he was working on USAU and writing all of that stuff. And Michael and I were focusing on the sketch comedy stuff that, was, that, that we were doing. And then the other thing that we did was at the end of the night, we would play something we reckon is great that isn't on TV here. And it'd be stuff that we'd get on VHS from friends in London or whatever. Like the day-to-day, the early Chris Morris, um, just trying to... Have you seen Brass Eye or... No. Oh, you... Oh, okay, that's okay, fine. You've got to see this. You've got to see The Day Today and then Brass Eye and that creates Alan Partridge. And okay. it's like... it's, oh, it's, it's okay. like So you go back far enough and it's Chris Morris's... Chris Morris is like... Well, he's Chris Morris. But Chris Morris and Armando Anucci made the thing, right? And and it's almost like if, if, if Peter Cook and Jon Stewart... Wow. Like it's that. It's quite a trip. Yeah. Who coincidentally are my two favourite comedians who which probably might make Chris Morris my favourite comedian. But anyway. Um so anyway, that that shit's amazing. And so but we some guy in an editing like an editing suite here in Melbourne, someone had shown it to him and he just ran off a copy on a tape. So we were we were in helping getting an ad edited one day because we did other work for exit films while we were doing all this. And he just goes, hey, you guys are doing comedy stuff, aren't you? Have a look at this. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Ali G. You know, like the early mm-hmm. Ali G stuff for when the, he was on the 11 o'clock show? Yeah, or? he was on another show. It was just a yeah. sketch on another show. Yeah. yeah, We got a tape of them and, and it was before. So we'd play an Ali G interview, mm-hmm. one of his fake interviews every week. And so we kind of took on this role of we want to educate our audience about what great comedy is out there. Because this is a time when no one was making comedy on TV in Australia. Like for whatever reason, sketch comedy was unpopular. No one was making stuff here. Um, And that was the pathway also that entered the deaths and thought, well, we'll become fast forward, we'll become the late show. Mm. But then no one wanted to make comedy on TV. So we were like, right, we're going to play good comedy to our audience. We're also going to play our stuff to our audience. And so we built it up and we just made so many sketches and we built it up and built it up. And then Michael and I were like, I reckon we've got a pilot. Like, I think we've got a properly good... Oh, the other thing we played was Big Train, the English sketch show Big Train, which... Like, there's now some other sketch shows like Mitchell and Webb, Key and Peele that are as good, but at the time it was the best thing since Monty Python and it's amazing. Big Train is... Mm-hmm. Like, like, I always acknowledge the influences on, on what we did and Big oh. Train was a huge fucking influence. Simon Pegg started out in Big Train. Um, and... And so we we're playing stuff we liked, making stuff we liked, and then we we're like, I reckon, I reckon we've got a pilot, a new kind of sketch comedy for Australia. And it was genuinely like nothing that had been done here. So we made it into a, a full pilot. It was like 23 minutes. You could have broadcast it. I taught myself After Effects and did full graphics on it, like, you know, full graphic credits at the start with like handmade motion graphics that I did with a shopping trolley and a cameraman in it like you know like we we thought our way to doing stuff that everyone takes for granted now and we and we did it and then we shopped that around and abc were interested seven were interested nine were interested ten were interested and and it would just all kind of went at once but it also got tricky because seven seven were really keen and they signed Charlie Clawson and I up to a development deal as well as Kate Mack, who was in our pilot, and Richie Pyros, who was in our pilot. Like, so people from our pilot, like, we all got signed up to work on a new sketch show at Seven, and I was like, fuck, this is, this is going to be it. Here we go. Um, 
However, at the same time, Roving Enterprises were looking at making Skit House and they wanted Michael for Skit House. At the same time, the stand-up's been going pretty well and Triple J want me to start doing Drive on Triple J and all of a sudden there's about too, too many opportunities all at once and you can't keep the band together. And, and so that was it. And so what ended up happening out of all of this, also along the way, Michael and I had done two comedy festival shows. Mm. Oh, sorry, we did one comedy festival show. The Creatively is still my favourite thing I've ever done. And it was, it was a two-handed show where Michael starts doing stand-up at the start of the show and then I interrupt with news that civil war has broken out in Tasmania. Tasmania has declared their independence. Civil war has broken out. We do news coverage of the war in Tasmania for 50 minutes. The war is fought and resolves itself just in time for Michael to finish telling the joke that he started telling at the start of the show. And it was, it was kind of the perfect comedy festival show. It was great. So all of this happened and we wanted to make something with that. And Anyway, so all of these options sort of happened all at once. Yeah. And then... And Michael and I were great. Michael and I were just like, we'd, we were never going to stand in each other's way for anything. And he may actually remember this slightly differently, but the way it happened, he went to Skid House and did that. I took the job at Triple J, but keeping my options open as a writer for, for this thing at Seven. And all the other guys went and started working on this thing at Seven. And... um. I ended up staying involved with the Seven Project until I felt that it was breaking one of my rules of what a good comedy show is. And my rule is you have to start with a group of people that want to work together and then do the show. What Seven did was just they tried to sign up as many different people from as many different places as possible and put together the ones they liked the most and tell them to make a show. And that was when I, I walked and I was like, no show that's ever made it has followed that business model. No show that's ever been great has followed that business. Monty Python, they fucking, they were all into each mm-hmm. other. Big Train, they were all into each other. Mitchell and Webb are two guys that like working together. Um, Fast Forward was a group that wanted to work together. But, the, uh, the, the you know, um, did I say The Late Show? The Late Show was a bunch yeah. of people that wanted to work together. And unless you're like, I, I think about like, unless you're a manufactured band. Yeah. The, the only reason the creative, that sort of thing works is with excellent management. The only reason that One Direction didn't like each other when they were together. The, those yeah, yeah, yeah. Liam, Liam and Neil, they, no, yeah. they didn't like each other. Um, but the only reason they were together is they had like Good massive man. band, massive management and huge, for want of a better word, direction. They knew exactly what they wanted to do, which then you get to something like SNL, Lorne Michaels uh, yeah. is just like, you've got to have that. Yeah, one person in charge that says this is how it's going to go, and then everyone comes together. So unless and, and what exists. and what I'd say what I'd say about the experience at Seven was there were some amazing people there that I wanted to work with from a production point of view. Todd Abbott, who most recently produced Please Like Me, the Josh Thomas show, but before that he produced The Dream with Roy and HG. He produced McAuliffe Tonight on Channel Nine, like, and he's one of the nicest people. Like I love like I mm. love hanging out with him. I. He also worked on the project at the start, like, and and there's no one I'd you know rather work with. He's he's just great. And there were some people like that, but the problem at Seven at that time was it had been a long time since they'd made sketch comedy or made some comedy. And you talk about having great management. What you need is someone who's really made a lot of comedy to go. 
don't worry, everyone. I know how comedy is made right now. And I, and I don't think I'm pissing anyone off to say that. It felt there were lots of great people who were really enthusiastic, but there was no one who'd made a successful sketch comedy show before to say, don't worry, I know how to hold this together. You know, and that... So... There's no Ted Emery or, or someone like that. Yeah, I'm... Tra- I th- oddly enough, I think Ted came in directing way down the line. Like, right. they got him in when it was time to direct the thing. But you, you need that kind of wisdom early. Early on, yeah. And Ted's amazing. Ted's amazing. But I, 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 it felt to me that early on it was getting too big. There were too many unfamiliar parts to it for me. And, so I was, and also at the same time, I was on Triple J. I was still with Nicole Fassati at that point, which wasn't going well. And I was like, do you know what? I've got to go fix my radio. Like I've got to go make the radio happen properly. And this is turning into something that I had never intended it for, to, yeah. to be, and so I just let it go. And, and so how and made did, that call when? Because I always, I always say, I say this to everyone um, when it comes to broadcasting, radio is the wax on, wax off of all television. Yeah, totally. Radio is where you learn, particularly drive or breakfast. That's where you learn. The paint the fence up, breathe in, paint the fence down, breathe out. And then when you're in another broadcasting environment, you've got that base of yeah. this, is, this is the emergency procedures. This is what we do when we're running out of time. This is what we do when someone throws a wobbly in an interview. This is what, and then when you're, on, when you're on telly later on, it's totally fine because you've got all that underneath you. But if yeah. you tried to go to television without radio, I, I'd, I would know, never know how to have done it. Yeah, that is... Insanely true, and you can you can see people even recently who've who've started doing some stuff on TV, but they've they've also started doing some radio stuff, and it's the radio stuff that's making them where they're learning the things that they need to take on TV. You have you to, know, you need those be. flying hours, and and it's just true. I, I, but a lot of it, I, I've got to say, Australia has, in my opinion, a very immature show business compared to the states and compared to the UK which has a highly evolved industry where there is a path for growth. Um, we don't have a second city improv group that bred Belushi, Aykroyd, Stephen Colbert. Like, you know, like, you know we don't have that. Like, if you're a young kid and you want to be the next Will, Will Ferrell... You've got no groundlings to go to. You've yeah. got no UCB to go to. It's, it's like, what's your, what's your career path? That, that yeah. isn't spelt out. And in Australia, way too often the job goes to the famousest person because we're such a tiny market that program directors think that's how you succeed by sticking the famousest person in. And, and I always think, you run a fucking TV network. You can make someone as famous as you want. You know, like that, that's what blows my mind is it, particularly radio and TV go, oh, we need someone famous to do this. And I'm like, get someone you think can do it well and fucking make them famous. Hamish and Andy. No one fucking knew who Hamish and Andy were. Turns out they were just really fucking the best at doing radio. And lo and behold, you had a national network to make them the most famous people in the country. Like, this is so simple. Yet you, even recently, like, and, and I've got friends that are part of this breakfast show. But when I heard that the new, like, the new breakfast lineup was going to be like Mel B and Sophie Monk and Jules Lund and Merrick, I'm going, okay, they're all really famous people. That's four. I, I, like, is it really? Have they announced that already? Yeah, they've announced Has it. Has it so, been announced? Yeah, that's been announced. So, so it's who? Mel B. A Spice Girl. A Spice Girl. Sophie Monk. Yep. Jules Lund. As in Fifi and Jules. Yep. And Merrick. Merrick Watts. On, 
today today FM breakfast Sydney, Sydney breakfast replacing Kyle and Jackie O. Holy moly! And here's the thing: I'm I'm never going to write anything off. I haven't heard them do it, but like I Jeez, think to, I think to them. myself I think to myself like. It feels to me like you grabbed the most famous people you could. In the monks there, like I know Merrick Watts has got about as much radio experience as anyone going around. Jules Lund has been great with yeah. Fifi on, on radio. I don't know Sophie well on radio. I don't know Mel B. But to me, there is a decision there. Oh, we've lost our big Sydney breakfast people. The way to compete with that is to grab as many famous people as we can at once because they're all individually great. But if, but have if, you, it, if have, it works, what? Yeah. I know, but do you know? Do you but know here's what I, the thing. You know talk- what, but also, do you know what happens there? That's an expensive show to sign up, bro. <laughs> like <laughs> that's, that's an expensive sign up. You and I know that. That's show. a lot of that's money. That's a lot of money. That's Whereas, do you know what? If you knew, if you if you had done the research and you knew who the next Hamish and Andy were, who would have cost a tenth to sign up, and would have ended up getting twenty percent of the fucking market. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like to me, that's a much better business model. Like that, that but that's just yeah. But who? Well, I don't know how to run a radio network. I'm never going to pretend that I do. And I always get in trouble whenever I try and tell people who run networks how to do their jobs. I don't know how to do but, that. Yeah. I don't know how to run a radio network, and I don't envy them. But that we can witness such an incredible time in Australian radio. In is, cha- the change is, going on. I was talking with. I'm doing breakfast at Nova at the moment in Sydney, and I was talking to the. The PD there, he's a British guy from DMG in the UK, and he's like, we can't think of any market anywhere in the world that's had this much upheaval simultaneously at the same amount. It's an incredible time, an incredible time. And in this time, and only in this time, could you put that kind of radio show on Today FM? Yeah. And listen, mate, good on them. I say, if they could pull that off, if they could pull that off, that is mind-boggling. With Kyle and Jack rebranding Mix as Kiss and bringing that Seacrest thing in, You've got to come. You've got to have howitzers, man. Yeah, I know. I I completely get that. But my strategies are never broadly commercial but, in the way that they're initially. Say to you though know. that no one knew who Merrick and Rosso were before the Jays. Yeah. All right. And it's they and Jules as well. They followed that path that you talked about. Yeah. Of making people famous. Same with and, and Sophie in a way. Sophie's filled in for Jackie many times. She's actually yeah. quite good on air. So and, and the thing is Sophie's been doing the flying hours on, on radio. Yeah. That's a, that's the thing. I I think what I, I can't remember where it started, but I think oh what I was saying was But yeah, if I could flying go, hours on yeah. radio and flying hours in general off Broadway are where careers are built. Yeah, you've got to be shit. I had to be shit in the middle of the night for years before I was any good in the in the daytime with the sun up. And I'll I, and I'll be really honest about when I started at Triple J, I was I'd been doing stand up for a year. Um, I was greatly helped. I will come back to well, no, this is all part of the the one thing. When I was making my decision about whether or not I go back to the law firm, like when I was out of money, but stand up was starting to happen. And I didn't know if I was going to go back to work or keep doing stand-up. Um, Will Anderson, I bumped into him at the opening of a new stand-up comedy venue. And he came up to me and he said, hey, I saw you in that Groove Terminator clip. That was really funny. Now, there's this clip for Groove Terminator, you can't see, where I have a breakdance battle with Arthur, who's um, a dwarf. And Michael is in the film clip as well. It came out of Exit Film. Someone was making a clip and they came into the comedy, the funny guys, and said, oh, what would you do in this film clip? And we wrote a story and they ended up making it. And uh, uh, 
So anyway, he'd seen me in this clip and he said something nice about it. And all I knew at the time was he was a guy who had a career from stand-up in this country. He had a proper career. Like he, he sold tickets. His shows were great. Like he, he, his approach to stand-up was amazing. He, like he was dedicated but he was rewarded with an audience and he was holding down Triple J Breakfast nationally. No other national breakfast shows. He was holding that down and he was only a little bit older than me. He'd started around the same age as I'd started doing comedy and I was like, this is talking about there being no career path. Mm. I could see the guy who'd trudged through the jungle to cut a career path. And so I got his number and I rang him and I said, Hey, can I buy you a coffee and just ask for your advice? And I met him at Mario's in Fitzroy, where all great things in Melbourne comedy happen. <laughs> but uh, I met him at Mario's in Fitzroy. We had a coffee. I think I was the first person ever to ask advice. People had asked for help before. People are going like, I want to put on a show, I don't have money, can you help me? You know, like, and he'd always yeah. help people. He's, he's the most generous, generous to a fault, right? He's the most generous guy. But I think I was the first person to ask his advice and to have that approach to it, like to actually be talking strategically about what to do. So we met at about three in the afternoon. We parted company about two in the morning. We, we had taken drugs. We, like it was, and we had not real. We did not know each other before that night at all. Like we'd met once or twice, and it just became like it was like, hang on, I th- are, we, are we friends? <laughs> I think we're friends now. And and so like by later in the night, and it was weird. Like he had a date with someone. I won't say who he had a date with. But he had a date with someone who was meeting up with him and and he said, oh, just come on the date. And I was like, what? And so we went out to a bar and the date happened and he's also friends with Adam Richard. Adam Richard arrived and we ended up, we were going out and having this big, it was like crazy. It was, it was really weird. But the, the bottom line was before he went home, he took out a pen and he wrote on one, one of my hands, he said, don't be a lawyer. And on the other one, he wrote, be funny. And then he left. And that was like... That was the first, that was genuinely the first time I was like, all right, maybe this is going to work out. Maybe it is. Because it was like, there was nothing definite anywhere along the way. So Triple J happened a lot because Will took a great interest in what I was doing, encouraged me. He was at Triple J and when Drive was open, he managed to get my name on a list of possible people. Wow. So I got some mid-dawns at Triple J. Um, I also, Kevin White, his manager, started to take an interest in me around the same time. Uh Uh-huh. And so he started to – Kev encouraged Triple J along the way to, to look at me and then I got this, this Drive Radio gig. And what I will say is I was not ready for Drive Radio when I got it. I should have just been doing mid-dawns. I should have had a weekend show. I was not ready for it. Um, I got partnered with Nicole Fassati. I'd heard her on radio and, and I thought, oh, she's great. But it turns out together we weren't right. Like we just – we weren't right. As a mix, you were breaking your own comedy rule. Yeah, that's right. No, that's exactly right. Well, yeah, but for whatever reason, because it was radio, I know you both, and you both lovely. Yeah, but I think maybe because it was radio, I thought maybe it was different, or uh, you know, like everything I'd done in radio up until that time was no, just go where I, I was told. And I say this on the show. I say this on this show a lot. There is no more. I mean, unless you're an astronaut, 
um, there really is no more intense work environment than a radio studio. You are asked to bring your own emotion, your experience, your life experience, the things that annoy you, the things that bring you full of joy, and then sit in a room about the size of a space capsule for hours at a time. You better like the person that you're in there with because it's yeah. a very small space to be in. Yeah. And if there's any kind of I don't like you or we don't work together, it's not fun. Yeah. And it got and the listeners hear it. It got heated. And yeah, the listeners, listeners hear it. You can't hide on radio. What was really funny, the Chaser were on air at that time doing Chaser News Network and they used to have like a headline ticker running yeah. along the bottom of the screen. Yeah. And this is how I knew things were bad for us is when the Chaser ran a headline saying Pickering and Fasadi attend peace talks at Camp David. <laughs> and, um, you made a Chaser News yeah, Ticker joke. But that is like... <laughs> and it, that was the point where I was going, oh, this is fucked. Like, like it was super funny and though it that like perfectly done. That is But that was kind of the first time I was like, oh fuck, that's right, everyone's listening. Or it felt like but not everyone, but people are listening to this not work. And um Yeah, wow. And so so um uh So I was fortunate enough that a change was made and I got to work with Mel Bampton, who was our producer, and Mel and I got along like a house on fire, and she had heaps of radio experience, which is what I needed. Like, I needed that guidance. Yeah. And we then made a show that I was really proud of, and I reckon by the end of two years, I was probably ready to start doing drive radio. Right. But we interviewed the best bands, the most amazing people. We had great moments. We had great fun. Um. And you had to go to put all those arrows in your quiver that you would then use, and I'm sure you use the skills you learned then now yeah. on the project. Oh, yeah. I, and it was, because I was kind of, my ego was beaten down a lot by the six months with Mel, uh, with, sorry, with Nicole, because it didn't work, and, it, and it, I was struggling publicly, and I didn't know what to do. And so I had to rebuild who I was, you know, and, and my confidence. And that's when I started to dig on those early rules of like, don't be intimidated by anyone. So when we could get Noel Gallagher for an hour and Noel Gallagher's a hero of mine, I'm like, go in and own it. This is your time. Like, this is the, you know, this is, and this really is when you've got to do one it. One of the greatest interviews you can ever ask for is Noel Gallagher. Oh, he's the best. No one has their ducks in a row. You know, his, his, no, his, one, no one like... Um, before he started Oasis, he read, he would just read Melody Maker and he just li- li- like studied... Uh, Melody Maker uh, interviews. Amazing. Like, relentlessly. So he learned to do interviews. Exactly. That's amazing. So that's why he's such a great interview, because he's read so many great interviews. Yeah. He's amazing. Um, um, we have been here for a while. I, yeah. I, 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 I do want to... <laughs> no, it's great. This has been amazing. And I'm so, so grac- grateful and probably going to have to do a part two. Um, but I... I do want to say, oh, because you, your wife's come home and I want to get out of your house. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Saturday, just Saturday afternoon with you, your wife. You're a very good guest, actually. Uh, you really are. I, I want to get out of here. Um, I just want to... I'll have them done in five minutes, Celeste. Um, look, you've, you've been so gracious in, in allowing me into your home and, and sharing your path, which though people may see you on telly every night and go, oh, yeah, yeah, he's just there. You've just described to me and to everyone listening, like that it wasn't linear and then it was a little work and you got told no more times than you got told yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and the good gigs and the bad gigs are equally important. That's, it's like the rule of stand-up is the rule of life. It's the rule of working in entertainment is like when it, when it goes horribly wrong, you learn a lot more than when it goes horribly right. There are very few lessons to learn when everything goes right. But when you eat shit on impact, you learn a lot quickly. And, and that's, you know... 
That's really true. Where did we get up to? We got up to Triple J. That's interesting. But, but you know, we only got... Yeah. No, no, look, look, look that's okay. But I, I do want to say it would, be on, it would be not right of me to say, but you have been gracious enough to allow me to sit in your chair. Ah, oh, on the project. And do your show on the project. Well, you've been good enough to do it. That's a lot to help me I out. cannot tell you what it did for me, my self-esteem and my career to be allowed to give, be given that opportunity for you to go. Because I know they would have said, we need someone to fill in. Are you going to be okay if it's that guy? And when you said, yeah, he's okay. To, to how fortunate I felt to be, not that I don't love doing big shiny floor TV, all right? And yeah. my, my big brother gives me shit about this all the time. My big brother, he's very smart. He's an economist. He's got degrees for days. Um, but he's like, what are you going to get on TV and be as smart as you are? When are you going to do that? And to be get, given the opportunity to go on television and ask those kind of questions to those kinds of people in that forum, I can't tell you how well I sleep those nights. Ah, man. man that's I, great. I, I, honestly. Well, well okay. It, like, because it makes me slightly uncomfortable being thanked like that. But what I will say is this. is like when, like you say, you know, I, if someone's going to fill in for me, I get asked about it. And I didn't even have to wait for the thinking music. Like, like I, because the, the thing is, like, um, when I was trying to get jobs in broadcasting and trying to start out, and this, I'm not doing this to make this a mutual appreciation society, but you, you were working, like you were a broadcaster and you never stopped working. Like, or, or it felt to me like you never stopped working. You filled airtime on Channel V. Like, you want to learn how to do television? <laughs> Go and fill eight hours on Channel V all the time. Three hours a day, five days a week. It was just, but it was, and with with like, with, with like a good, great, clearly a great production team, but it was, it all, it was always like, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, it's the biggest compliment I can pay. It was like three hours of airtime with about an hour of content and the rest was up to you. Do you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) and that's every day, like, and that's the thing, when Idol came along for, for you and Matho doing, doing Idol, which is a massive and stressful gig, I've never seen two dudes handle something like that more calmly because I reckon you were going, this is fucking easy compared to Channel V three hours a day. Like, oh, compared to three PD-150s on the back of a truck in, the, in a field at Dubbo. With, yeah. With, oh, who was that band? Super Heist. With like Super Heist oh, as our Super band. Heist. They were really nice guys. Yeah. <laughs> But hey, you're like, if Super Heist hears this, you're a really nice guy. Hey, Burger. I've still got a signed Super Heist album in my CD collection. Like, you still have a CD collection? I gave them all my way. Uh, yeah, I've, I haven't finished putting them all on my, on my terabyte. But, uh, I, um, but yeah, I, but like, no, really, thank you, because you've created a show, and I, 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 I tell people a lot about this in the States. I, the, when people ask me what, you know, because, shit, it's on my reel, man. It's yeah, on the yeah. reel that I, I show to people when I'm looking for jobs in America. And they say, what's that show? I say, well, it's like the Daily Show, but if there was four people at the desk and you all talk about it. Like you say, you play the same kind of stories and then you all, then you all have, a, have to have the conversation and you all get to be the voice of the, of the people watching. And it's, you've created this show in this space where you, what I love about it is like, it's, like I said at the start of this, it's it's antidote to this fear. It's an antidote. It's like we can't, there's seven ways to look at this in 15 seconds or 30 seconds after the story ends. There's 20 ways to look at this. No story has a yes or no answer. Mm. And 
if you're not answering the question, you're at least saying, and you do it often, you say, there's more to this that we can't go into, but you obviously see it's a complex thing. Have your own think about it. Yeah. And that you're giving that, that permission to think to the yeah. <laughs> is such a huge gift to and the that's, broadcast. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. We, we've just, it's funny. I think we're trapped by our own press release. I'll say that. We, when we first started doing the show, we were going, it's, it's, it's the project, it's, it's news but not as you know it. And we had to send out a press release and we all worked on the press release. And, uh, and I got the job. I'd been a writer in, on Rove. I wrote Carrie's news desk jokes for three or four years at Rove. And everyone just knew I was really into news. And I was never meant to be the host of the project. I auditioned. I, I had the job of a daily correspondent who'd come and do a segment. I helped out with all the other auditions. And then there was one day where we had 10 minutes of studio time left. And they just said, oh, Charlie, do you want to have a go? And the moment I put the earpiece in, I was like, oh, this is your shot. This is, you know. But the interesting thing was all of the hours on Triple J, doing weekend breakfast on Triple M, all of the stand-up gigs to get an idea of who I was and how to communicate it. There was the, It was that Eminem moment, <laughs> you know, like that, this is your shot, this dun, is your one dun, moment. Dun, 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 and dun, and it, was yeah. like, it was like I got 10 minutes. I got 10 minutes to show what I can do and, and you know, I got lucky. So once, once I got the job, and we were going to tell everyone about it. We wrote this press release. And all the smart-ass shit that we wrote in the press release, which was, it's easier to say what this show isn't. It's not about fad diets. It's not about shonky fridge repairmen. It's not a story that no mother can afford to miss. And we made a list of all of the current affair, today, tonight, shitty commercial current affair cliches, and we wrote them in a press release saying, this is what we're not, and we're never going to be that. And then... Since that, we had to fucking make the show that lived up to the press release. So every time someone goes, oh, why don't we do a thing about, you know, blah, and I go, yeah, because that's a current affair, because that story was last Thursday on a current affair. We can't do that. And that's been, like, we were fortunate because of that. We, we straightjacketed ourselves and we're like, well, the only way out of this is fucking the truth <laughs> and trying to, trying to come as close to accurate as we can and have some standards and some ethics about how we do it. And, you know... Which a lot of people don't quite understand how how much of the day at the project. It's so exciting to be there on the day and there's no show at nine in the morning and there's an hour of content at 6.30. That is an incredible thing to be a part of and how much goes into it that absolutely everything that goes to where everyone in the team stands behind. Yes. An enormous amount of work goes into and it. And I don't know anywhere else that it happens like that. Like, like in Australia, I, I, I don't know anywhere else that where it happens in that way. Um, and I feel blessed to be in an environment where I can do that. Although, to be fair, I wouldn't remain in an environment where I couldn't do that. If you know, like, I'd rather not have the job than have to go on and say things I don't believe in, and 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 sell. But as you demonstrated throughout your career, you always made that choice. I'd rather not be here than be here. Then, if this is how it's going to be, I'd rather be somewhere else. Yeah, I, yeah, and, and it's funny. I've never thought of it like that, but I just think there's a. a well, you're not going. You got to know yourself. You got to you got to back yourself in and go like. There's a right way to do it, and if we're not going to do it the right way, then it's not worth doing. And and that's that's you you just have to accept that. Not that doesn't happen often enough on on TV, I, in in my opinion. What I think is interesting about where we got to is like I've done two federal elections now, and in both of them, the prime minister and the opposition leader did interviews in the last week of election on our show. Now we are just a bunch of kids. We are not serious grown ups of news. They didn't do that on everyone's news shows. They didn't do that everywhere. They came to talk to us, knowing that we would be fun, but we'd be difficult as well. And that kind of says that whatever we've done, 
we've somehow gotten into a place where we're a campaign stop for people that want to run a country. And that's shit. When did I ever think I'd get to do that? Like, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, that's, um, but that makes you just think, all right, got to, got to come up with some other goals. <laughs> got to come up with something else to do now. I, you've got many years ahead of you, man. It's going to be wonderful watching you. Uh, and, um, next time we talk, uh, I want to talk about cycling. All right. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I want to talk about marriage. Yes. Uh, I want to talk about your thoughts on race in this country. Yep. Which are really interesting. What's the other thing I want to talk about? I love the way you left that, like your thoughts on race, which are really interesting. Like you have some of the most racist thoughts. No. No, 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 I understand. um, I I think I benefit from, I've I've spent a bit of time in the States where people at least understand what a race problem is. At least and the, I don't think people over does. people over there also acknowledge what they did to their indigenous population. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what was the other thing I read about? You wrote this really interesting article about self esteem that I found really fascinating. All right, but so we'll, we'll do that next time. Next time, awesome. Um, um, hey, this has been this has been great. I learned. I, I remembered a bunch of stuff I'd forgotten. It's cool, a great man. experience. This is, this is, I'm going to take you like photo. a cure for Alzheimer's right here. <laughs> now, I know it's Saturday afternoon. You want to spend time with your wife, um, but I'm going to take your photo. It'll only take 125th of a second, though. Sweet. Cool. <laughs> thanks, Cheers. Thanks. That was Charlie Pickering. You can find him on Twitter at Charlie Pick, C-H-A-R-L-I-E-P-I-C-K. Let him know you heard him here on the show. Let him know you heard him here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, thanks to everybody that supports the show by tweeting out a link to the show. Once again, if it's for you, please, osherginsberg.com. Just tweet out that website address. That'd be awesome. And uh, while you're online, while you're on the website, just pop your email into the mailing list. I won't spam you. I don't like spam as much as you don't like spam, so I won't spam you. I'll only ever write to you good stuff that I wouldn't want to read myself. That I would want to read myself. Ah, oh, tired. Okay. Thank you so much. Next time we talk, um, I think I'll be back in Los Angeles. But until then, uh, it's good night from beautiful Amsterdam. Um, And so, yeah, have a great week. Uh, Sleep well and dream of beautiful things, my friends. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 